Physicists and mathematicians alike know well the name of our guest today. So do futurists, biologists, and readers of science fiction. Dr. Freeman Dyson is famous for his work in quantum physics, as well as his many books and articles popularizing science. His awards have been many, including the Wolf Prize in Physics and the Enrico Fermi Award. His interest in theology has earned him a Templeton Prize. From topics as diverse as solid-state physics to nuclear disarmament to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, Freeman Dyson has proved himself to be a generator of ideas. For this, he is esteemed by colleagues in many disciplines all over the world. As part of UC Davis's 100th anniversary celebrations, Freeman Dyson returned to campus, he helped UCD celebrate its 75th anniversary in 1983, to do what he does so well, stimulate thinking. We're pleased to be able to chat with him today, and we say with great pleasure, welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Freeman Dyson. Thank you. Dr. Dyson, I'd like to start out by putting uh, your unusual talent for math in perspective for our listeners. In writing J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who spearheaded the development of the atomic bomb, Dr. Hans Bethe, the future Nobel laureate, said, Mr. Dyson is absolutely unusual in his ability and accomplishments. I can say without reservation, he's the best I've ever had or observed, which is quite an endorsement for any letter of recommendation, but, but I gather that you knew early on you, you had a certain gift for math. And I read an account where you were basically in the crib and calculating that one, the, in the series one, one plus one and a half, one and a quarter, worked out to two. This is like presumably before you, by the time you were learning to walk. I don't think that soon, but <laughs> I, I, I don't know when, how old I was. But certainly it was the time when I was being put down for a nap. And... Which is quite a story. I was struck, too, by the fact you say you never became a modern mathematician. You noted that you never learned any of the abstract stuff, because the 19th century stuff is what you needed for applied math. That's right, right yes. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit about, about, about modern math and having perhaps limited apl applicability? Yes, well, of course, they take great pride in being abstract, but that was more true in the 1940s than it is today, because the mathematics world has changed a great deal, and lots of young mathematicians came into the game who are really excited about computers and all the things you can do with computers. So that has made mathematics actually much broader and more in contact with the rest of the world. I can actually talk to the young mathematicians today and they are much less dogmatic than, than their grandfathers were. Dr. Dyson, the great names of 20th century physics were people, in many cases, you knew quite well. And, and I'd like you to reflect on a few of them, if you would, starting with Hans Bethe, who won the Nobel Prize in 1967, the person who wrote that nice letter about you. He, uh, he basically explained how, what powers the stars. Uh, what, what was it like working with, with Hans Bethe? Wonderful. He was just probably the best mentor for students that I ever came across. I mean, he had lots of students. People came to him in crowds. And... Always he produced the right kind of problem of just the right degree of difficulty for a particular student. He knew somehow intuitively what we could do and what we couldn't do. So he gave me absolutely the right problem for my, for, for, for my particular talent, which is mathematics. And, and uh, so I was able to do it. And, and uh, without his good judgment, I wouldn't have hit it. I wouldn't have hit the jackpot so, so young, certainly. <laughs> you also know Richard Feynman quite well. 
He wrote two amusing bestsellers in the 1980s that were celebrating his quirky side, and I think you said at one point that Feynman was part genius and part buffoon. <laughs> no, actually, I said half genius and half buffoon. And no, that, that I was proud of because I wrote that in a letter to my mother just one week after I arrived in America, and I think uh, it showed good judgment on my part. <laughs> But yet it does seem you learned from him and, and were able to actually assist him in his physics. Yes, I actually, I wouldn't say I, I assisted him in his physics. What I did was to translate his physics into the kind of language that other people could understand. And that was uh, important, but it didn't change his way of thinking at all. But it changed other people's understanding of him. Well, my understanding is that he was very, uh, he, he did work using uh, diagrams and quantum electro dynamics. Correct. And and yet other people were using equations and you were able to, to, to show that the equations and the diagrams are actually equivalent. Right. So you could translate what Feynman was doing into ordinary language that the rest of us could understand, which uh, was a disappointment in a way because Feynman hoped to find a totally new kind of physics and that didn't work out because it turned out to be the same stuff in a different language. And, uh, and, and I, I, I can't help but mentioning it aside. One of his books, he printed a letter from you where you, you folks went to a conference, and at one point you were writing someone describing how Feynman got fed up with the conference and went out to sleep in the woods, which I thought was pretty funny. Well, actually, it was more remarkable than that. What, what happened, we arrived at the, the conference hadn't yet started. We arrived the night before at midnight. So it was a cold February night. Feynman was then quite old. He had had two cancer operations, and he wasn't in very good shape. Anyway, we arrived at this place, which was extravagantly ugly, a place called the World of Tennis, a sort of hideout for oil millionaires in Texas. And we were supposed to sleep the night there. Well, I went to bed very happily because it was late at night and I was ready to go to bed. But Feynman simply, when he looked at the place and he said, I'm not going to sleep here, walked off into the woods and spent the night out. So that is a true story. Well, it turned out that Feynman and two of his colleagues did get the Nobel Prize for that work. That work that you showed uh, was equivalent. And, and I'm wondering why it is you didn't, didn't share that Nobel. Is it because they only split them up to three ways? or? Well, it, it, I didn't do the work. I mean, they did the work. I, I simply acted as a sort of public, uh, public relations agent for, for Feynman was more or less my job. No, I never had any, any, any claim of, for, for a Nobel Prize. I'm not the kind of person who gets Nobel Prizes because I have much too short an attention span. I always <laughs> jump around from one thing to another, which is, which is fun. And, but no, no, that wasn't a problem. Nevertheless, if you're able to show that two areas of physics are complementary and actually equivalent, it sort of reminds me of, I guess, in the 1920s when Heisenberg had one way of doing his physics and then, I guess, Dirac had another way, and they were able; to, they were equivalent, but each strengthens the other when you find out that there's two ways of getting at the same problem. Cor correct, yes. Speaking of, 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 of short attention span, I, I read a quote you had about Robert Oppenheimer, of course, a very extremely interesting figure in, in, on the world stage. He was your boss after World War II, um, and I guess there was a class this morning talking about, about Dr. Oppenheimer. Can you, can you share a few thoughts about him? Yes, he was my boss, but I never got below the, 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 the surface layer. I mean, I never really became a personal friend. He, he kept himself very guarded. So I never talked with him really about anything important. But uh, I certainly knew him well in a sort of superficial way. And it was, un, it was sad because he was director of the Institute for Advanced Study, which is just a group of independent scholars. And, and he wanted to, to be an important person in the world, undoubtedly. 
that wasn't the right place for, for him, really. I mean, at, at, at Los Alamos, he had been the conductor of the orchestra. He ran the show. He was marvelous at that job. Everybody agrees. He was a great director of a big enterprise. Well, the Institute for Advanced Study is not like that. It's like herding cats. And, and, and he wasn't good at herding cats. So he was always getting into silly, rather petty little squabbles with people who did who were jealous of him for some reason. And, and so it was not a very happy position for him. But in spite of that, of course, he had a lot of freedom and he was traveling a lot around the world and being acclaimed as, as, as a world figure. And so he wasn't unhappy, I would say, but he certainly didn't fulfill himself. And I read you were correcting some uh, an impression people had, or I guess you were, you were quoting the fact that um, uh, they put a play on about Oppenheimer showing as a morose figure with a lot of regrets and things, and, and you say that really wasn't the Oppenheimer that, that, that you knew. Well, there I, I can say for sure that he disliked this portrayal of himself intensely. I mean, he hated to be painted as some kind of suffering figure who had been sold his soul to the devil. And, and that that image, which was very widespread, he totally repudiated. And he actually sued the production. It was The play was produced in Copenhagen, and, and he sued the production, got the production stopped, because he said it was a total misrepresentation of the way he was. So he had strong feelings on that. In his own eyes, he was a good soldier who did his job for the government, giving us weapons, and that was it. And he never had any regrets. I just read last week there's an opera out about him now, I guess, as well. Yes, I've seen the opera, and, and it, it's now playing in New York. And I must say, it, 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 it has absolutely nothing to do with the opera, opera <laughs> Oppenheimer I knew. But uh, I wouldn't expect that. I mean, opera is not supposed to be <laughs> a faithful portrayal of history. And it's the only place where, where a guy gets stabbed in the back and instead of bleeding to death, he sings, is the description <laughs> of Oppenheimer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, the, the whole notion of Oppenheimer singing somehow is <laughs> grotesque. <laughs> We're speaking with Dr. Freeman Dyson, mathematician and physicist extraordinaire. Well, we just mentioned Hans Bethe, and, and, and um, he was involved with nuclear disarmament, and, 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 and so have you been. I wanted to talk a, a little about the, about the future of that topic as, as we go along here. But um, looking, I want to look backward. I'm, I'm very curious about where you stand on the development of the hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer was in, in great, I guess when you were working with him, was sort of... Uh, at odds with Edward Teller and some other physicists like Ernest Lawrence and, and Louis Alvarez, who are really pro-development of that hydrogen bomb. And some think that if we hadn't built it, neither would the Soviets. And, and Teller insisted that if, if, if we can do it, they can do it. We need to beat them to it. How do you view all that? Well, it turned out to be irrelevant. That's the remarkable thing. This whole huge de debate and with all the passion that was involved, in, in point of fact, it had almost no effect and the, for the following reason, that we were afraid of hydrogen bombs getting bigger and bigger. The hydrogen bomb was originally conceived by Teller as something enormous and a huge thing which would blow up a, 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 a whole metropolitan area and destroy millions of people. And that was the original design, what's called the classical super. That was the original design which depended on being huge in order to function. And, uh, of course, people were very rightly scared of that, and, and, and uh, Oppenheimer opposed it, mostly on technical grounds, that uh, it just didn't make much sense, and nobody really needed it, 
so why do it? That was, I think, a reasonable argument. But then Tatella invented the real hydrogen bomb, which was totally different. And it was, in fact, it went immediately in the opposite direction. So it was invented by Teller, and then afterwards the Oppenheimer agreed it was a sensible thing to do because it was different. And um, so the effect of the invention was actually to turn it from something enormous to something quite small. And, and um, the, the whole development of the arms race from that point onward was making the hydrogen bomb smaller and smaller. And as the rockets got more accurate and guidance systems got better, you, you, you needed to have them much smaller in order to be discriminating. Right. And so, in fact, the race was to make it small and, and, and compact and not to make it enormous. But can I, can I clarify, when you say small, you mean like maybe a, a megaton versus, say, 50 megatons? No, way below a megaton. Okay. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is that if you look at the stockpile as it now exists, mm -hmm. the, the, the American and Russian stockpiles, they would be almost exactly the same if the hydrogen bomb had never been invented. It really had no effect in the long run. The reason simply being that the, the, the generals don't want these en enormous bombs. They generals are not interested in killing millions of people. They want, in fact, to take out military targets, kill as few people as possible. So what they wanted, in fact, is weapons that are reasonably small for the job they're supposed to do. And that turned out to be about the same size as they would have been anyway without the hydrogen bomb. So it's, it's a curious quirk of history that this whole debate in the end didn't make much difference. Wow. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but, but before I do, I want to still look backward a little bit. Um, Enrico Fermi is a legendary figure of physics. You, you, you did have a chance to meet him. Uh, did he impress you as he did so many other people with his, with his quick mind? Indeed he did. Of course, that's a story which I don't know whether you want to get into. It's a somewhat technical business, but... Uh, I went to see Fermi in 1952 with tremendous confidence. He was doing experiments on scattering mesons on protons. This was a strong into looking at the nuclear forces in fine detail with an accelerator, measuring precisely how these strongly interacting particles behave. Uh, my team of graduate students at Cornell was doing calculations to try to explain these experiments to try to model the strong interactions. And we had done some beautiful calculations which really agreed with Fermi's experiment very nicely. So I came on the Greyhound bus to Chicago carrying these theoretical calculations in my hand and walked into Fermi's office and said, good morning, Mr. Fermi, uh, here we are, we have explained your experiments. And, and anyway, Fermi didn't even look at my curves. He said very quietly, you know, there are two ways of doing theoretical physics. and The way which I prefer is to start with a well-defined physical model and go from there. The alternative way is to start from an exact mathematical formalism and go from there. You have neither. <laughs> so that was more or less the end of the conversation. But he turned out to be completely right. And that was what was so astonishing, that uh, he understood right away that our theory couldn't be right. And he sort of knew that just by the seat of his pants. And that was the kind of person he was. And in fact, so I went home to my students and said, I'm sorry, we have to find another line of work. And, and, <laughs> and that saved us probably three years of wasted time. One meeting with Fermi. Yes. 
in 20 minutes, I think I, I learned more than I ever learned from, from Oppenheimer in 20 years. And wow. It was a decisive point, actually, in, 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 in my career. That, so if, if Femi had not come down with a ton of bricks on, 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 on this calculation, we probably would have continued calculating for another three years completely in a dead end. And, and well, so we were saved all that. I'm always impressed by stories of, of, of people like that. I mean, uh, Louis Alvarez in his, in his biography described how um, he went to a meeting in Fermi. He hadn't brought any of the equations along that one needed for the, the, for the t- t- discussion they were about to have. And he said, don't worry, we'll just derive them. So he went to the blackboard and started writing and starts just one, one step after the other. And it just said, Alvarez was thinking, saying, like, on some of them I can almost keep up. So it was <laughs> just something to see. Oh, yes, he was a wizard. Well, I, I ran across an anecdote. I, I, I just... I. I have to I have to ask you about it. wasn't in any of your materials. It was in some interview with I think Lee Smolin. He wrote about coming to the Institute of Advanced Study uh, in Princeton. He had a burning curiosity about Albert Einstein. Had been there decades earlier. Uh, you were there contemporaneously with Einstein. He described that you you paid him a gentlemanly visit, and he took the opportunity to ask you what Einstein was like. And you and you said it's one issue I can't help you with. Can you can you tell listeners how you avoided Albert Einstein or why, you, why that happened while you were colleagues. It was very sad. It was, unfortunately, Einstein completely lost interest in contemporary physics. And that was, it was sad because we were doing great stuff and we had lots of new experiments going on, new particles being discovered. It was the post-war years when I was at Princeton for the first time. It was really a golden age of physics and we were entering this new world and Einstein simply never came to our seminars he never showed the slightest interest in what we were doing which was sad anyway because we were too shy to go and grab hold of him and say please come and which we should have done but uh, anyway so we, uh, we we never had any real contact I, I saw him walking by every day but I never spoke a single word to him and it, 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 it was unfortunate he was of course t- tremendously occupied in all sorts of ways. He was busy with, with political activities, with also with his own brand of physics, which was quite different from ours. But still, it is sad. There were other people of his generation, like Niels Bohr, who came to Princeton, who was immediately interested in talking to the young people. And, uh, but Einstein was not. Well, as Smolin reported the story, you made, I think he said you made an appointment with Einstein's secretary and was reviewing some of his material in the unified field the night before and more or less said, this stuff's no good, and I, and I can't I can't tell Einstein that. Now, is that is that true? I, I don't remember that actually, okay. in, 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 but it may well be true. I mean, it's 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 something that could have happened, and it's a good story anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Freeman Dyson, physicist and mathematician. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. <laughs> <laughs> 